Um, today's scripture reading comes out of the book of Acts, chapter 1. And the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let us pray. Father God, I want to thank you for just bringing us here this morning, um, giving us the hearts to be present. Father, open our hearts to know your power, to see all that you do here in Anger and uh, beyond. We love you, Jesus, and pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Uh, turn with me to the book of Acts it's in the New Testament. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. It's right after the Gospel of John. And turn to Acts chapter 1. Today we're starting a series. We're going to be working our way through the, to, through the book of Acts. And uh, you may be sitting there. Why in the world would we actually start a series working our way through the book of Acts? Because you've got stuff in your life that's going on. Like we all have stuff in our life going on. So why in the world would you do this series to this one weird book of the Bible, right? When I have issues and when you have issues, you may be sitting there uh, thinking to yourself, Rick, I've got financial stuff going on at home. I, I, I need some help understanding how to deal with money better and how to invest it and how to be wiser with my finances. Why don't you do a series on that? Or you may be at home and your marriage may be in a bit of a rocky point in, in your marriage. And you may be thinking to yourself, Rick, I need a, a sermon series on how to get my spouse to do what I want. Because that really would be helpful, right? If, how do I get my spouse to do what I want? That would be a really helpful sermon series. Well, we've done series like that. We'll do series like that. They, they have their place. They can be extremely useful from, from time to time because we all find ourselves dealing with that kind of stuff in our lives. Like, like how do I deal with work stress because work is difficult and that person at work that makes it really difficult. How do I deal with that? We, we all have this kind of stuff. Or how do I deal with that past hurt? Because someone hurt me in the past. So how do I reckon how do I myself forgiveness in, in, in my life? Or you've got anger issue. I've got this anger, this temper problem that I've got to control before I punt my child across the room, right? So these are real life issues that we all deal with and we have to wrestle with and we do need to actually face and confront and, and get behind us and do, do our, our due diligence there, spiritually speaking. But I would argue that the best way, the best way for us to face these problems is not when we're in full swing 
of the problem, but it's actually to address the problem before it's a problem. It's actually way better to get ahead of life, to, to get in a position in advance before the stuff happens, before it hits the ceiling, before any of that, to actually get my life so grounded the right way so that when life throws its junk at me, and it does, and it will, that I'm in a position to, so that its effects, its negative effects are diminished, so that it's, they're, they're minimized to the absolute most ability possible. Because I don't want my emotions to be bullied by life's junk anymore. Because something's going to happen, and I don't want to be at the mercy of the stuff that happens. I'm tired. I'm absolutely tired of being reactive. Proactive, creative. I want to feel what's next. I want to be ready for what's next. I want to be strong in advance. There's stuff that's coming down the pike this afternoon, this evening, tonight, this week. It's coming at us, and we can actually be prepared. We can be spiritually organized and ready and strong in advance before it comes at us. And the Bible tells us that we can actually walk in power. We just saw that in the scriptures that were, that were read. We, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we can walk in power power but unfortunately if we're honest we would have that most of us most of the time are not walking in power are we we're kind of really more defeated and deflated most of the time instead of walking in the power that God has promised us we're walking around in weakness or is it just me all right that's just me all right that's fine I'll keep going I can preach to myself I can preach to myself so this past week, I rewatched, I rewatched the famous 1985 boxing fight between Marvin Hagler and Tommy Hearns. If you're not a boxing fan or you're not into it, you don't. You can tune out for a few minutes here. If you know what I'm talking about, that fight back in 1985 is the best three rounds of boxing ever. I remember watching it when I was young. It was only lasted three rounds. It is the closest to real life Rocky Balboa fight that you will ever see. Tommy Hearns and, and Marvin Hagler, they went at it. As soon as that bell hit, they started just swinging and they were co connecting. And it's just a, a beautiful thing to watch, right? People pummel themselves, right? It gets some of us excited. So they were in it. They got paid a lot. I don't feel sorry for them. So anyway, so they're, they're just pounding other in the first round it looks like like Hearns is going to take out Hagler because he's landing some serious shots on Hagler and, and he fights back and his knees buckle a little bit but Hagler he fights back they get to the second round and it looks like Hearns like Hearns he's taller he's anchor he's got power it looks like he's going to take Hagler out but then Hagler hits him with a hook and you see Hearn's knees, they just kind of buckle and, and wobble a little bit. But he fought through it. He muscled through it. And so he got through the second round. He gets to the third round. And they're both just absolutely like just destroying one another. And Hagler hits him with another hook. And then now the knees buckle. And the legs get wobbly. The legs get weak. And all it took was one cross from Hagler and down goes Hearn's. And when, when I walk around and when I talk to people, uh, to, to Christians, it looks like we're all walking around a bit knee-wobbly. It looks like we're walking around as if life has just connected a good haymaker on us. 
And so we're about to get knocked out, and it, all it takes is one more shot from life, and we're going to end up like Hearns, flat on our back, down for the count. That's what it looks like, right? That's what it feels like. That most of us are walking around like we just caught one on, on the chin. Well, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ, that should not be the case. It tells us in Scripture that in Christ, you are more than conquerors. God has promised his power to be active and alive and at the ready in us. He's promised spiritual strength for all of those who are in Christ. So why is it that that's so often the opposite of the reality that we walk in? Why is it that so often we're weak as opposed to strong? And the reason why, quite frankly, is because we're not prioritizing properly. We're not prioritizing things the right way. Power comes when you prioritize the right things. Power comes when you prioritize the right things. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it details the life of the first Christians back, way back in the, in the first century. It details their lives, and their lives were extraordinary. And that's the right way to say it. Extraordinary, not extraordinary. I, won't have, I don't want to have anything to do with extraordinary. I don't want more ordinary. That's like saying extra medium. Like it's meaningless. It means nothing. Extra medium. It's more medium. Well, that's weird. No, I want large, extra large. I want it supersized, right? I, I want an extraordinary life, not an extraordinary life. And that's how the first century Christians lived. They lived an extraordinary life. They are a real life example of of people who enjoy the power of God in their daily life. And so what we're going to see as we get through into Acts uh, for the next three, four months, however long it takes us to get as far as we're going to get with this series, uh, what we're going to see is that they actually prioritize the kingdom of God, they prioritize the mission of God, they prioritize prayer, and they did so together as a community of faith. One of the reasons why so many of us so often walk around in weakness is because we have bought into what the U.S. culture will, is selling us, which is it's all about the individual, about independence and individuality, right? Because I, I got to do me. Let me do me. You do you. I'm going to do me and just leave me alone. Like, so that's it. We take that American culture and then we bring it into our Christian faith and just know that there's no power in isolation. There's no power in just doing your own thing and just doing you. The power that God provides is in the context of Christian community. The power that God gives is when God's people are together prioritizing the right things. So here we go. Let's go ahead and get into, into Acts here. Um, it was written by Luke, this guy named Luke, the same Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke. And in verse 1, you see that Luke refers to the first book, right? Refers to the first book. That's a reference to that gospel, the gospel of, of, of Luke that he wrote. And in verse 1, he also says that in that book, in that first book, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So don't miss that word began. The word began implies what? 
that some, yeah, it started something and implies that something is to come, that something is to follow. There's stuff that Jesus began to do and to teach previous or prior to his ascension up to heaven, which is what's captured in the Gospel of Luke. There's stuff he began to do and to teach, but there's more to come. So before, before his ascension, it was Jesus that was doing it, right? Well, what comes after that is that Jesus continued to do and to teach how? Through his people. He continued. This is what Jesus is still doing to this day. Jesus is continuing to do and continue to teach through his people. And that's the story of Acts. That's what we're going to see as we get into this book. And we read there in verse 1 that Luke is writing to this guy named Theophilus. And Theophilus means friend of God. It means loved by God. We don't know anything about Theo. I'll call him Theo. He's probably a cool guy, so it's just Theo here. And so we don't know much about Theo, but we do know one thing. Theo wrestled with faith. Theo had some doubts and questions about Jesus and the Christian, the Christian God who is Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Well, because back in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Luke writes, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke did some research, he did some interviews, and he wrote something out, that's this orderly account, and he wrote it for this most excellent Theophilus. For what reason? It says that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught, that you've been taught. So clearly, Theophilus is someone who's wrestling with the Christian teaching. He's wrestling with who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what God has promised into the life that we're, we're called to live. So I want you to know that faith is always wrestling with doubt. Faith is always wrestling with doubt. If you are, in fact, a Christian, I want you to know this. It is okay for you to have moments of doubt. So often I talk to someone and, and they, they're going, they're battling uh, weird emotions and guilt and, and fear and all this stuff because they have a moment of weakness and doubt and often they think that, they're, that God doesn't love them or anything. Folks, it is okay to have a moment of doubt. You know why? Because your faith is not perfect. Our faith is not perfect. No one's faith is perfect. John the Baptist was a prophet. He was Jesus' cousin, and he doubted at one time whether Jesus was the Messiah. Peter, one of the disciples, got to see firsthand miracles by Jesus. He's walking on water, and he doubted in that moment. The entire book of 1 John was written to address uncertainty. We read in, in 1 John 5.13, says, I write these things to you who what? Who believe in the name of the Son. He's writing to Christians, to those who believe, so that you may what? Know, that you may know that you have eternal life. So right, right there, he's writing to people who struggle with doubt, who struggle with assurance. 
believers, by implication, we can actually have a doubt from time to time. At, at the end of the day, we're all Theophilus. We're all just like him. And it's okay to wrestle with doubt. What's not okay is to settle for it. You can wrestle with it, but it's not okay to settle for doubt. And this is why discipleship is so important. The process of discipleship is growing in the knowledge of the gospel and, and becoming more like Christ and learning more about God and the life that he desires for us. That's discipleship, right? Discipleship weeds out the doubt in our heart and it replaces it with faith. It's how we weed out the, the negativity, this uncertainty, and we grow our faith. So one of the questions that we all need to wrestle with is this. Will you give yourself over to discipleship? Will you give yourself over to an intentional process by which the doubt is eroded and it's replaced with something so much better, and that is a trust and assurance and a confidence in, in who God is? So Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, and he writes the book of Acts, both of them, to disciple Theophilus. He wrote those two books specifically for one person, to disciple Theo. And then, however, whose job was it to actually be discipled? It's Theo's job. He had to actually read it and study Learn it, apply it, meditate on it, grow in it, marinate in it, uh, digest it, absorb it, and let it transform him. He had to make himself available and put in the, the time and the effort and open his heart up to the very discipleship that was being offered to him. And it's the same way for today. That for us to erode the doubt in our life and to grow in faith, we have to give permission to others to disciple us. We need to look for Luke's in our life that can speak into our life and teach us truth. Like discipleship means us giving ourselves to being together in a community of faith. So we may be do Bible study from one another. It means life together that we may learn from one another and teach each other and, and give assurance and build each other up. So, commercial. Wednesday nights, we gather here at 7 p.m. Life together, some people gathering together, we open up scripture and we do Bible study together. We disciple one another. You know, we don't hear where uh, God just lectures. We actually do small groups. It just happens to be in our building and we each other in format. And if you can't make Wednesday nights at 7, we do the exact same thing at 9 o'clock here on Sunday mornings before our worship service. On top of that, there's a ladies' group that meets on Monday mornings for Bible study, for those whose schedule can allow that. So my point is, prioritize it in your schedule, one way or the other. And if you can't make one of these, maybe there's a Luke that you know in your life that you can say, can you help me to understand? I'm out. Help me, teach me. Build me up. But we have to prioritize it in our schedule. God generously offers power to each and every one of us graciously offers the spiritual strength to all of us but that cannot thrive when we're dealing with doubt uncertainty robs us of the capacity to have faith 
uncertain, when it's the complete opposite, it robs us of the capacity to enjoy spiritual strength. So question, do you want power in your life? Do you want it? Do you want that which God offers to you? Do you want it? I will keep asking it till I get some head nods. Thank you very much. Well, if you do, take the time to prioritize the things in your schedule so that discipleship becomes a reality. So that community, and this discipleship is something that only takes place in the context of Christian community, right? Prioritize it in your schedule, in your life, in your week, in your month, so that you can have the capacity to grow in the power that God so freely offers to any who want it. All right. So let's move on. Verse 2. Luke writes that Jesus gave specific instructions to the apostles that he chose. The apostles are a unique group in history. They're unique to the first century. They they were taken from those original 12 uh, disciples. So Jesus chose this unique group to be apostles. Jesus himself personally discipled them for the day that he would no longer be on the planet. When, uh, for that time after his ascension. So Jesus specifically discipled them, and their job was to lay the foundation of the church, to kind of set everything in motion, the, the initial group that would set the, the church in motion. And in verse 3, we read that Jesus appeared to the apostle, apostles multiple times. So, Some people will say or have said or argued that this resurrection really didn't happen. It was just a mass hallucination. That would make sense, I guess, if all of a sudden you had multiple people, multiple apostles, all of a sudden having this group mass hallucination. They're walking around Jerusalem, and they happened to come across some peyote, and they all had a party, and they all hallucinated themselves that Jesus was raised from the dead. Which is crazy because one person can have a hallucination, but multiple people aren't going to have the exact same hallucination. So it's not a hallucination. It was not that Jesus was a phantom, some ghost, some apparition, no such thing, by the way. But it's not that Jesus was a ghost. He had a flesh and blood. He had body. Thomas touched the wounds that, where the nails went. It actually says that Jesus ate. He ate with the disciples. Ghosts don't eat. Again, no such thing as ghosts. But anyway... If they were, they don't eat. They're spirits. You know, like spirits, a ghost, something like that, wouldn't eat. So my point is that for 40 days, Jesus appeared and reappeared and manifested himself before these apostles to leave no doubt that he is, in fact, the risen, resurrected Son of God. Capiche? Like, that's, that's why he appeared to them so much. Let there be no uncertainty about who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And so, during those 40 days, when Jesus hung out with these apostles, between the resurrection and his ascension up to heaven, during those 40 days, what did Jesus talk to them about? Well, it tells us in verse 3. It tells us the very end of verse 3. He spoke to them about The kingdom of God. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the key central facet of all of Jesus' teaching. Of everything that Jesus preached, that was everything was about the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1 verse 15, 
Jesus began his earthly ministry with these words. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know, that's a phrase that we throw around quite often. The kingdom of God, what does that mean? What does it, what does it refer to? The kingdom of God refers to the rightful rulership of God. It's just that simple. It's the rightful rulership of God. God created all things, and because he created all things, he's the rightful ruler of all things. But see, we, we had a better idea. We had a, a, a better notion. We, we thought that it would be better for there to be an alternative kingdom. God, this good, wonderful, majestic, loving God to rule over our lives. We thought that a, a new kingdom, a better kingdom, a different kingdom in which we rule our lives, that that would be better. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Right? It would maybe possibly, if not for this. How could a bunch of people struggle, struggle to balance that book? A bunch of people who run at the sight of a snake or a spider. A bunch of people who at this time of year can't step five feet without pollen absolutely destroying us. How can us, with those limitations, think that we could rule our lives in the universe better than the God who created it, the loving, all-knowing, all-wise God of the universe? It's preposterous. But that is precisely what took place in the Garden of Eden. So here's Adam and Eve, and they know better. They know better. They rebel against God. They, they basically launch a coup d'etat against God, and, and they decide that they want to be their own God. That was what was placed before them. If you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. So they wanted to rule over their lives. They wanted their own kingdom to reign over. And what was so sad about what they did is that instead of becoming rulers, they became slaves. They became slaves they when they sin this new kingdom entered the world and it's a kingdom of death and sin and darkness and so basically they took their citizenship from this good king from this good kingdom and they replaced it with something way worse and not only them but they took the rest of us with them they took the entire human family into that kingdom of darkness and death and the good news you know, it's what we celebrate every week, particularly Christmas, the, uh, Christmas and then also at Easter. The good news is that God would not be so easily defeated, that his kingdom would not be so easily bullied. So he devised a plan and he sent his son and Jesus comes storming into this world. He gives his life on a cross and there he absorbs the rebellion unto himself. All of that sin, all of that transgression, all of our pride, this rebellion against God, Jesus took it upon himself. He paid the price on the cross. He died. The third day, he was raised again. And that being raised from the dead proves that he has conquered death and sin and shame and guilt and sickness. So now, and this is why I love the gospel, this is how easy it is. Sometimes it's so easy we miss it. So just breathe this in. This is how easy the gospel is. It is simply by God's grace through faith in who Jesus is 
Whosoever believes in the Son of God who turns from that sin and gives their life over to him, we're forgiven of every sin, and our citizenship is restored to the right one. We're forgiven of all our sin, and we are now delivered out of that domain of darkness and transferred over to the kingdom of God's light. Isn't that beautiful? So easy, so simple. Jesus did all the work. It's just a matter of us believing it and giving our lives over to it. And that's just it. The choice is ours. Each and every person has to make the choice. I can't make the choice for my children. My parents can't make the choice for me. Every individual has to decide for themselves which kingdom do you want to believe in. And so life on earth, this life is really nothing but us deciding which kingdom we're going to be a part of. Do I want to be part of the kingdom of light and life where there's a benevolent God caring for me and watching me? Or do I want to settle for the kingdom of darkness and sin and where I pursue the things of the world? Which one am I going to be faithful to? Which one am I going to be devoted to? Which one am I going to give my life to? Because it can only be one. It's, it's one or the other. It cannot be both. So this week I stumbled across this article. I just had to read it because the, the title of it just grabbed my curiosity. And it was this. Millennials have found a new way to sabotage relationships. Millennials have found a new way. Never been done before. Millennials. Not picking on you. But millennials found a new way to sabotage relationships. So let me just read a little bit from this article. Really. Cushioning, like a seat cushion, cushioning is a newly coined dating term wherein a partner in a monogamous relationship still flirts with other people. So if their main relationship goes kaput, there is a backup ready. First of all, let me just say, millennials, like you may have your own word for this that you stuff. Let me tell you, that ain't new though. There's nothing new about keeping options open. It is an ancient dating practice that goes back at least to the 1980s, and I'm pretty sure started at Harnett Central High School. Not sure about that, but I think that's the case. Yeah, I, I got a witness in the back there. All right, I appreciate that. Let me keep going with this. So a cushioner, her name's Lauren, a cushioner Lauren said she was still messaging lads. So I guess this is from England because no one here uses the word lads. But anyway, messaging lads while hooking up with her steady. This is her quote. Awkward when their names would light up my phone while I was sleeping over at my boyfriend's place. That's lovely. But I felt like I need, needed them as an insurance policy she's keeping these connections loosely with others just in case this one doesn't work out right she wants an insurance policy and i read that article and i'm like man like how many of us do the same thing spiritually how many of us who claim to be followers of jesus we have one foot one foot in the kingdom of god and we got the other foot in the kingdom of the world like we're we're spiritually cushioning god it's what we're what we're doing we want to have our fun and we want to do our thing and we have a good old time and we, i want to do me i want to do this 
but I want to keep my eternal spiritual insurance policy in check. And so let me just say that if you're a follower of Jesus, there is in your life for cushioning God. For cushioning God. In James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, You adulterous people, do you not know what that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you not know friendship with the world is enmity with God? What that verse is saying is that friendship to the world is talking about loving the things of the world, pursuing the things of the world, grasping on to the things of the world, prioritize them ahead of God and the things of God, and being in such devotion to the things of the world is equivalent to being hostile toward God, enmity with God, many of us are not living with power in our lives. We're, not, we're devoid of spiritual strength because we're cushioning. Because we spend more time pursuing the things of the world rather than pursuing God and his kingdom. We're cheating on God. We're more loyal to the stuff down here than we are to the God who loves us. So, do you want power? Do you want power in your life? Well, then, if you want power, you have to prioritize the kingdom of God. You have to prioritize God and his righteousness in your life. you got to be like Joshua in the Old Testament who said, But as for me and my house, we will serve. It's at this point, all of us need to make that decision, which is it going to be? And it needs to be a definitive decision that we own in our life. Which kingdom am I part of and which one am I prioritizing in my daily life? So, moving on. Verses 4 and 5. Jesus instructs the apostles to sit tight because in a few days they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're about to receive. They're about to receive something that at that point God had been promising for hundreds of years. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, God said, I will put my spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you. There is no greater blessing that we could ever want, that we could ever ask for, than for God to place his spirit within us. Us. This is ultimately what distinguishes a believer from a non-believer. At the moment of initial faith, that moment of conversion, that moment of salvation, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Meaning that we are immersed into God's grace. We are united with Christ. At the moment, that moment where you first you get it, you understand like you're, that you're a sinner. Right, we all are. So you're a sinner, and that you're in need of salvation, that, that you're kind of hostile toward God, but you want to be a friend of God. That moment where you realize it and you grab on to the grace of God as given to Christ on the cross. The moment you grab on to that, everything changes. You're baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're, you're so transformed that the very Spirit of God takes up residence within you. You as an individual become a temple of God. Well, let me ask. 
The Holy Spirit, and by the way, the Holy Spirit's not an it. It's a he. We would never refer to God the Father as an it or Jesus as it. So often I hear people, oh, it, the Holy Spirit. No, he is the third person of the Father's Spirit. He, he, Jesus used he, the pronoun he referring to the Holy Spirit, John chapter 14, 15, 16. Anyway, that moment where he, God, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in you. You know what happens, right? The presence of God is with you, in you. Well, how can there be presence of God without power of God? It doesn't even make sense, does it? Where the presence of God is, the power of God must be as well. So I'm now going to challenge some of you in the room because I don't know all of you and I don't know all of your hearts. Okay? Your heart, that's between you and the Lord. But I'm going to ask a, a very poignant question. Some in this room this morning may not experience the power of God simply because there's never been a moment where you've given your life over to Jesus. There, there's not been that moment where you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's been a moment where, not a moment, where you've actually given your life over. You kind of sort of believe, right? I intellectually, academically, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but that's not the kind of belief that the Bible calls for. The Bible calls for the kind of belief that changes your life. A, one where you, you grieve over the fact that you've sinned and you repent of that life and then turn a new life and you give your life over to follow after christ so if you want power that's where it starts it starts with embracing the gospel of jesus grabbing on to the grace of christ and becoming a new person and letting the holy spirit come and take up residence that you may have access to not just the presence but also the power of god and so that brings us now to verse six Finally, we're ready to get into Acts after all of that. The first five verses of Acts chapter 1 are actually an introduction. It's just a little synopsis. It's a bit, a little, bit of a long title. It's actually one sentence, verses 1 through 5. And so verse 6 starts the action. Verse 6 starts the story. And what is the first thing that we see the apostles do in verse 6? They come together. They come together. Folks, it is absolutely amazing how many times the theme of together first several chapters of Acts. It is constant. You can't get away from it. They're together. They, they, them, them, they, they, them, them, together, together, one accord, one, one mind, over and over. They're devo devoted to, to one another constantly. And so just to reiterate what I said earlier, there is no allowance in the life of a Christian, to be a rogue, lone wolf Christian. It actually is a contradiction. It's oxymoronic. We're called to be the people of God, not the persons of God. The people of God. The Christian faith makes no sense apart from Christian family. The Christian faith makes no sense apart from Christian family want power prioritize doing life together with other believers preferably in that local church and if this is your church like, giddy up come on let's do life together if it's another church praise god just do life there but do life together with other believers actively involved in each other's life so there in verse six the 
apostles, they come together and they ask a great question, actually. A, king, a kingdom-specific, kingdom-related question. They ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? It really is a great question. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't respond in any way other than to correct him about two things. One, he tells him in verse 7, uh, it's not for you to know. Like only God the Father knows when the kingdom will come in its fullness. So it's a good question, but it's not for you to know the answer. But the other thing that Jesus does is that then he redirects their thinking. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what, this is what Jesus does. He, re, he redirects their thinking from when to what. Like it's not important for you to know when Jesus will return in the fullness of the kingdom That's not important for you to know. What's important is what you do between now and that day. That's what's important. What are you going to do? And so here is what we're told to do. Jesus says, be my what? Be my witnesses. Be my witnesses. What does it mean to witness? Like here recently, I'm just kind of more aware that a lot of times we use words in our Christian lives, in our Christian bubble, and we take it for granted that everyone knows what we're talking about. Like witness, what is, what is that? I witnessed a car accident. Well, is that what we're talking about? No, not particularly. We're talking about what it is that we have seen. By witnessing, we are, we're talking about telling people about what Jesus has done and about what Jesus has taught. In witnessing, we're talking about giving testimony to the reality and the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And what Jesus has, what, will, what he will do, what he has promised for us. We, we're telling people, we're sharing the truth that Jesus died on the cross and he was raised from the dead. He ascended up to heaven. And what he's witnessing is telling people that, in fact, God does love you. And that forgiveness of sins is available. And that you can now be forgiven of all your sin if you just believe in Jesus. That's witnessing. It's sharing the gospel. Sharing your testimony. Telling people what God has done for you. And if you know enough to be saved, you know enough to share. The job description of every, every believer is to be a witness for Christ. And I, I, I'm emphasizing the Every believer, every Christian, our description is to be a witness. And the reason I say it that way is because for years, for years, I denied that to be the truth for me personally. I I took it to be optional. I took it to be basically a suggestion by Jesus as if he had said, well, if you will be my disciples. But then one day I realized he didn't say, he said, will be my witnesses. And I get it. I've been there. I, I still am to a large degree. I get it. When you hear that, when I hear that, it causes a little bit of shuddering inside, right? It causes a little bit of fear and apprehension. Well, because we don't know what's going to happen. What do I say? Say it to. How are they going to react? What if they don't like me anymore? What if they defriend me on Facebook for, sh- for being a witness and sharing Christ to them? 
So we, we live with all this fear about what may happen or, or the fallout. We're so risk adverse when it comes to sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with others. We're timid. And that, folks, is exactly why Jesus said he would give gave us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, specifically to have the strength and the power to do what it is that he's asked us to do. To have the power in order to live as witnesses. All right, you ready for this? I'm going to mess with some of you with this next statement. The power that God gives you is not for you. It's for him. The power that God promises and provides and gives is not for you. It's for him. It's for his kingdom. It's for his glory, for his mission, his purposes, his priorities. Yes, we benefit. Yes, there's, there's something about the power of God that, that soothes aches and emotional despair. And it's such a comfort and it's so right and it's good. We do benefit, but folks, it is not for you. It is for him. And I have to say it that way because I think that a lot of times we're just trying to manipulate God. We're trying to manipulate the Holy Spirit as if it's just for me to cure my sadness. Where God can do that. He's the lifter of our face. He's the lifter of our countenance. He, it blesses God. He desires to do that for us. But the reason he comforts us is that we may comfort others. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Comfort those with the comfort with which you have been comforted. It is not simply for me, it is for others, which is to say it is for the glory of God that he would be praised and honored for his grace and his goodness. No, like today, we are by far the most entertained generation in human history. Movies, TV shows, sports, one click away. Folks, we have all the world's information in our pocket. The world's information sits real nice in our pocket. We are the richest people who have ever lived. Ever. You have a roof over your head? Running water? Power in your house? How about appliances? You got a refrigerator? Are you kidding me? Do you know how good a refrigerator is, how we take it for granted? Technology, phones, TVs, everything right there. Healthcare, folks. Regardless of how much you like or may not like the system or things change, whatever, there, it's there. We have healthcare, healthcare providers. We can go to the drugstore and get medicine. We are the richest people who have ever, ever lived. And yet something isn't right, right? What, what's up with the chronic sadness and defeatedness and this chronic deflation? Why are we so restless? I mean, don't we, we wake up restless? And I don't even mean from a physical standpoint. Like emotionally and spiritually, like we're just never quite right. We always just feel low and beat down and beat up. Why is that? If life is so good, if there's so much entertainment and there's so much wealth and stuff and technology and information, why are we so much at not at ease? 
And the reason why is because we're not prioritizing the things of God. And what is God's priority? That more and more people may come to know him for his glory. To set a people apart. To, to redeem people out of darkness and call them unto himself. A people who didn't declare his excellencies. Those are the priorities of God. That is what God is after, securing a people who know him, who love him, who live for him. And I just know this, if we would but just simply embrace our role of being witnesses and sharing the truth with others, if we would just embrace that as a priority, the priority in our life, we will be shocked, even though it's promised, we will be shocked at what happens. We will live and walk and breathe in the power of God. Fully, fully immersed in the strength of God in our lives. Power comes when we prioritize the right things. God's kingdom, God's mission, the church, and doing it together as a Christian community. So when I was a, a junior in college, went down to Cocoa Beach, Florida for spring break. Just south of Cape Canaveral, which is where NASA launches or used to launch the shuttles and the rockets and all that. And while we were there, they, we found out that they were going to be launching a Delta rocket. And it was going to be a nighttime launch. So cool. So me and friends, we went down on the beach and we set up there. And as soon as we sat on the beach, I, I was like preparing for disappointment. Because where we were, where our hotel and the beach were, it could not have been any further from the launch pad. It was just so far north, and it's just to the right, you can see this little dot. It was a light. That's what, because they light up the rockets from underneath. And so I was like, we're, we're too far away. This is just going to be a big old wah-wah moment, which is cool. Like, how neat would it be to get to see a rocket get shot off into space? So let me tell you that there was no disappointment with what I experienced that day because they lit that candle. Right, they, they, that, that booster rocket, it, it lit up, and that sucker started moving up. And let me tell you, I have never seen anything like what that rocket did. It was virtually day. It was at nighttime, and that one rocket turned the night into day. It was so bright, I tell you, there's no way people on the African coast didn't see what we saw. It was shocking how much it lit up the darkness. It, the darkness ran away from this rocket. But that wasn't it. Then came the sound. And folks, that was some straight-up scary junk. Because it wasn't just the absolute loudness of it. You could feel it. It, it was scary. We, we thought the world was ending in that moment. Like the world is about to blow up. That Delta rocket was made to defeat gravity and to take stuff into space. And when the rocket does what the rocket is supposed to do, it is an amazing display of power. But what if you take that Delta rocket and you try to turn it into a microwave oven just to heat up Hot Pockets? What a waste. Like, there's no power in that. There's no power in heating up a, a Hot Pocket was the same thing with us. We were made, we were made in such a way 
to display power. But there's no power if we're living for the things of the world. There's no power in the being like heating up hot pockets like by, by analogy. There's no power needed or necessary or displayed if we're just pursuing the things of the world. But if we prioritize God and his kingdom and his righteousness and the right things, we will be like that rocket defeating gravity, pushing back the, the darkness with the light of Christ and roaring the, the love of God. See, Jesus came not only to release us from the power of sin, he came to give us power for our daily lives. He came to make it possible for us to live for the right thing. He gave us his spirit that we may pursue the things of God. Power comes when we prioritize the things of God. Discipleship, community, God's kingdom, God's mission. So I ask that you would take some time today, this week, and evaluate your heart and evaluate your mind, evaluate your life. What is it that you're prioritizing? Well, how do I know, Rick, what it is I'm prioritizing? How are you spending your time? How are you spending your money? What do you daydream about? What captures your mind? What are your goals in life? When's the last time, if you're a follower of Christ, when's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Evaluate whether you are prioritizing the things of God. You don't need to settle for weakness. You don't need to settle for weakness and timidity. You don't need to settle for doubt or apprehension. God offers you an abundantly better life, one where your gaze is set on the things above and one in which your feet are grounded in God's promises. You know what kind of life God promised to give you if you will have it? You'll defeat the gravity of sin. You'll shine the light of Christ in this world and push back the darkness. And you will roar the love of God in such a way that people will take notice. God will be glorified and others will be added into God's kingdom. That's the priority. So I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes and bow your heads and, and give you just a moment to respond. And just to ask those questions and to evaluate your heart honestly. I mean, all of this is between you and the Lord. Do you want power in your life? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you embraced the gospel? Are you, in fact, a follower of Jesus and experienced his grace? If not, do so right now because that's where it begins. It has to begin there. Be baptized into Christ and, and let his presence come into your life that you may experience his power that he generously offers. For the followers of Jesus, are you prioritizing Christian community in your life? Are you prioritizing discipleship in your life? Are you prioritizing God's kingdom in your life? Are you prioritizing this life of being a witness for Christ? What is God asking you to do that you may live with the power that he offers?
Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you love us, that you're merciful and that you're kind. And that, Lord, that you know how hard life is for us, which is one of the reasons why you offer the strength, the supernatural strength for us to live in. Lord, we acknowledge that there's plans and purposes that you have designed. And we struggle to give our lives over to them, Lord. There's that part of us that still rebels. Lord, I thank you for grace that you're so patient with us. And that you gently nudge us along, Lord, bringing us closer and closer into your purposes. But I ask, Lord, that that you would work in our hearts, all of our hearts this morning in such a way that we would take a, a giant leap in the right direction. Lord, bring a conviction to bear upon our soul. When in which, Lord, we're less tethered to the things of the world and the, the life that our flesh desires and more in conformity with your life, the life you've designed for us. Or just, Jesus, make us more like you. Let us learn from your example that you did all things for the sake of your kingdom and that you did all things to bring individuals to know you that they may be saved. Lord, I ask that you would give us that same passion and boldness. Lord, keep us filled with your spirit that we may have the power to do so. For you have given us not a spirit of fear or timidity, but one of love and discipline and of power. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.